0: I'm so grateful to be with, with all of you tonight and share God's Word with you and uh, look forward to what God is going to show us in the Scriptures. If you would, go to the Acts chapter 5, a very familiar section of Scripture. In Acts chapter 5, in, uh, beginning with verses 1 through 11, we know that that's a section of Ananias and Sapphira and bringing in an offering which they had lied about in the purchase of the property that they had had. Um, and so we come to, down to verse 12 is where I want to begin. This was after this, when great fear had come upon the church. So start reading with me in verse 12, and we're going to go ahead and read to the end of the chapter. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more the believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that even they carried the sick out into the streets, laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is, a sect of the Sadducees, and they were all filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles, put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came Came, They called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law respected by all the people stood up in the council and gave orders to them put them in outside for a short time and he said to them men of Israel take care of what you propose to do with these men for some time ago Judas rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him but he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing after this Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him and he too perished And those who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men, let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing after the, and they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. This is your word. And I pray that as we consider this passage of scripture, this section of your word, help us to hear you, help us to listen, to obey. And Lord, I pray that we be changed by the power of your presence and by the glory of your word, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts five twenty-eight, verse 29, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. In Acts chapter 4, verses 5, 6, and 7, they had already been brought before this council once for this very same thing. They had already been preaching, they had already been teaching the name of Christ in Jerusalem. They had been brought before these men, and the Bible says there that on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this? Now in Matthew 23, Jesus has already addressed this group of men. He had already pronounced his woes. He exposed their hypocrisy. He had shown what was in their heart. He revealed very clearly, very succinctly, very directly what was going on with these men. And he had said to them, you pay so much attention to the To the outside of the cup, you don't clean the inside. On the outside, you take care of what the tomb looks like, but inside, you're like dead mids bones. So Jesus was not intimidated by them whatsoever, yet this was still a very powerful group of men who could make your life terrible, to say the least. Pretty much the Sanhedrin, some scholars believe, because of what was said in verse uh, 21, I believe it was, where he talked about the whole sentence. Yeah, verse 21 brought the whole council together, the associates, the high priest, the Senate of the Sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house. Some believe that this could have been more than just the regular Sanhedrin, which was made up of 70 men plus the high priest. There was what is known was the lesser Sanhedrin would be in smaller towns that would gather that would deal with civic duties, religious matters, and those were made up of some 23 different men. So it's possible there was close to maybe 100 men at this particular meeting. Now, when you look at verse 20, verse thirty-three in chapter 5, after Peter talks to them, it says that it cut them to the quick and they intended to kill them. It was the very same thing that was said after Stephen preached. They were cut to the quick. In other words, they were filled with rage and they were ready to kill these men, these apostles. So it wasn't, so, it wasn't simply just that they could make your life difficult. It was within them that they would kill you. Now, they were under Roman rule. And many believe that this authority to execute people was taken away from them. That is why Jesus was sent to to Pilate and it was taken care of. But yet we see after Stephen's message that uh, they were filled with such rage that they went and stoned them. Some think that it was just a mob rule, but yet they had the thought about them to take their robes off, lay them at the feet of Saul of Tarsus, picked up stones and stoned them. Point being, This was a group of men that they stood in the midst of these hundred men that could make life extremely difficult on them. And certainly we see at the end of it that they were flogged. So they had the power to beat these men uh, into a very painful, painful agony. So the question for all of us, what is it in these men that motivates them? That inspired them to have such courage and such conviction and such confidence in the face of such adversity. To sit amongst these sages and these high priests who would walk about and had great respect from people around them in these long flowing robes, knowing that the power that these men wielded, knowing that what destruction could come in their lives to them financially, to them economically, to them socially. And even physically, what was in these men, these apostles that stood in the midst of them and said we must obey God rather than men? It is something that all of us need to take in deep inside and ask that question because we are looking at days in front of us right now that possibly we could be challenged on some of these very same things. I just finished reading a book man by the name of Erwin Lutzer written, it's When a Nation Forgets God, Seven Lessons We Must Learn from Nazi Germany. Lutzer had pastored Moody Church in Chicago for some 36 years from 1980 to 2016, written many books, uh, several different radio programs that he was on. in. But this particular book, When a Nation Forgets God, Seven Lessons We Must Learn from Nazi Germany. He gave a reason behind the book, why he wrote this book. And it was twofold. First, he said, I wondered why the pastors of Germany did not stand together and condemn Hitler with one united voice. What was it about these men that they scattered? The second part of this was he wondered why the church was seduced by such false promises of a great and glorious Germany that they abdicated the Scriptures, they threw away the conviction and the calling of the church, and they ignored everything about what was going on with Hitler. What happened to them in Germany? What happened to the pastors, the preachers? Now, there were some, there were some that we won't get into. There were some the, that, uh, that stood for certainly, but most did not. In 1938, Hitler mandated the pastors to swear allegiance to the Nazi realm, to the Third Reich. The Nazi was the name of the single ruling party in his day, but everybody knew that it was all about Hitler. And so in 38, he mandated the pastors to swear allegiance. So the synod of the churches gathered. And basically what a synod is, is kind of like an SBC convention. All of the pastors gathered, all of the lay leadership gathered. How are we going to handle this? Well, they made a decision that fell right into the hands of Hitler. They decided to leave it up to every pastor how you would handle this mandate. Well, sure enough, some of the pastors were not going to yield to to what the Third Reich had called, what Hitler had wanted, what he was doing within the the country. And so 800 pastors were arrested. Hitler sent out his Gestapo, which was the state police, who, uh, if you've read anything about the history of that, they had such a ruthlessly way of suppressing any opposition to Hitler, anything to the Third Reich. The Nazification, which is what it called of the church, was that the church had to, could, could go about their business, do their things, but they could not preach, teach, or operate in any way that came against the Third Reich. So 800 pastors were rounded up and were put in prison, went to what was called the People's Court, and they could determine what they would do with them. Many of them wound up in the same camps that the Jewish people did. Uh, many of them were killed and executed. But in his book, the question is asked, well, what did the rest of Germany think about this? These people, that, these pastors that got arrested, how did they feel about it? There was, within the midst of these people, they had come to a place of a complete indifference. In fact, he quoted Uh, William Shire in his book, The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich. And this is what he wrote. He said, It would be misleading to give the impression that the persecution of Protestants and Catholics by the Nazi state tore the German people apart or even greatly aroused a vast majority of them. It didn't even bother them. A people had so lightly given up their political and cultural and economic freedoms were not except for a relative few going to die or even risk imprisonment to preserve the freedom of worship. Not many Germans lost sleep over the fact that 800, and as time went on, several thousand were arrested. And even fewer paused to reflect that under the leadership of Rosenberg, Bormann and Himmler, who were backed by Hitler, that the Nazi regime intended eventually to destroy Christianity in Germany, if it could, and substitute the old paganism of the early German Germanic gods. As, as, uh, as Bormann, one of the men closest to Hitler, said publicly in 1941, national socialism and Christianity are irreconcilable. So Lutzer writes in his book in response to what, to what Shire said, he said the majority of the people, including the majority of Christians in the Third Reich, no longer believed that Christianity was worth suffering for, much less dying for. They were willing to substitute Hitler's indoctrination for the Bible in exchange for what he said were great jobs and greater glory of Germany. It didn't even bother them. Pastors abandoned pastors. Christians abandoned Christians. Churches abandoned each other. They had lost sight of it. So what about a church in our nation today? What about here? What about this nation when a church abandoned its conviction and its calling? What happens? Albert Moeller wrote a book called The Gathering Storm, and in it, there's a couple of articles I want to share a couple of with you, and I've got got to hurry with this. There's so much I want to share with you, but it's so critical that I get this to you because these two men I'm going to share these articles about, it isn't anything in particular about them, but it's about what they are saying that is infecting the church today within this country that is going to leave this country in a very difficult strait. Let me begin by one of them. In 2018, an article appeared in the USA Today by Baptist minister and lawyer Oliver Thomas with the headline, American churches must reject literalism and admit we got it wrong on gay people. The article begins with a provocative statement, Churches will continue to hemorrhage members until we face the truth. Being a faithful Christian does not mean accepting everything the Bible teaches. According to Thomas, the source of the church's error is not a misinterpretation of the Scripture, but rather the Bible got it wrong. He wrote, quote, Here is the corner we've painted ourselves into, the Bible says. Or the Bible says it, we believe it, that settles it. It was written by men, and those men made mistakes. Just, Moeller says in just a few words, Thomas denied the position of the church. The Bible got it wrong. The Bible's wrong. He says what about adam hamilton pastor of the largest methodist church in the country he said he was suggesting that all the texts in the bible all of the texts in the bible including texts about human sexuality must be sorted into three different buckets the first bucket contains verses that never amounted to the expression of god's will this was his words The second bucket encompasses texts that at one time denoted the expressed will of God, but no longer. And the last bucket holds texts that are the true expressions of God's will and always will be. Moller responded, Hamilton has repeatedly denied the inerrancy of the scriptures, but he went further and argued that human beings are to decide which biblical texts are or ever have been God's word. The audacity of applying human reason to jettison verses is never expressing the will of God. Is arrogance to the higher order. Confusion begets confusion. Capitulation begets capitulation. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What are these two men saying? What is so clear here? What is that that is permeating throughout the congregations, permeating throughout? Number one, the Bible's wrong. The Bible's not getting it right anymore culturally and socially within the United States of America. It doesn't step up to where we are as a nation, where we are contemporary, where we are in our social thought, in our social paradigm. So if the Bible's wrong, it's no longer authoritative, it's unnecessary, it's not applicable. It's merely a literary work. It has merely got some things, some good, some good uh, principles, maybe some good things by life that we could live by, but the Bible's wrong. And so as a nation, when the church says the Bible's wrong, then what begins to happen? Humanity then, as what Hamilton said, determines its own truth. Humanity discerns what is law, what is applicable to its society. No longer is it fall under under the the authority of the scriptures and that there is a God. Now we determine what it is. Therefore, we are no longer responsible to any higher being. We establish it ourselves. So when the church helps a nation to see this, then what begins to happen? Well, the church now becomes irrelevant. It becomes inconsequential. And that's exactly what happened in Germany. Hitler had got the church where it was no longer important and it was irrelevant. And Germany went and did whatever Germany wanted to do, which ultimately leaves a nation to its own undoing, chaos, and collapse. It will always happen. So when you have men of God standing, or lose that term very loosely, the Bible is wrong. And you and I get to make it say what we want it to say. And we say this in social media, people go online, you may have a thousand in your church, but you've got 10,000 listening out in the culture. What happens? So we come back to our question What was it in these men that they stood in the midst of these, these leaders in the community, these 70 to 100 elders and high priests? Who could have done things to them physically, which they eventually do, which Stephen did? Where was the conviction and the confidence? And that's what we've got to have in the church today. If we keep stepping back and stepping back and stepping back, then there'll be nothing. We will become irrelevant. We will become inconsequential. I want to give to you a couple of things I believe. First was an undeterred conviction. We have told you to stop preaching in this name we have told you to stop teaching in this name you bring his blood upon our heads this is what's coming from the high priest from the elders and peter and john and i believe there was more than just the two there we must obey god first there's a compulsory imperative a compulsory imperative there is a required, mandatory, obligatory imperative of obedience to God. We submit to God's authority. Romans 1.14, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 1 Corinthians 9.16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Matthew 28, 19, do you remember Jesus says, go, that's the command, go therefore, baptizing them, making disciples of the nation, teaching them to do everything I've commanded you. In John 21, verse 22, when Jesus and Peter are walking on the shore, and Jesus is talking to him about the future of Peter, and Peter looks to Jesus and says, what about him, talking of John? Jesus says to him, if I want him to reign until I come back, or remain until I come back, what is that to you? You follow me. There is a compulsory imperative to the church that we are to obey God because he is our God. We submit to his authority as born-again believers in Christ. That when God calls us to do something, we don't go ask somebody if I should do it. We do it according to the scriptures. There is that compulsory pull. There is that desire to be obedient to him because he's now our Heavenly Father, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord. And what happened in Germany and what has happened in others, they had forgotten that conviction. It was all about a job. It was all about this. 800 pastors got arrested. Didn't even blink an eye when that happened. We could stop right there, but If we stopped right there with a compulsory imperative, how do you explain verse 41 and verse 42? How do you explain that? The Bible says they went on the way from the presence. Scripture says that they were flogged. They went on the way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. The word rejoicing comes from a, a Greek verb. In other words, the Bible is not talking about they rejoiced in their heart and they rejoiced in their mind. It's a verb. It's an active expression of joy. It was a, a salutation. They walked out praising God loudly where the crowd could hear them. Wow. They had just gotten beaten. 39 stripes on their back. With a, with a flog, which is a, which is a little short-handled thing with leather thongs on the end and sometimes bone on it or, or knots of the leather, that it would just strip flesh and it would bruise and they walked out praising God. How do you explain that? I believe there was a compelling imperative. Not just the compulsion, not just the submitting to God's authority, but there was this irresistible forceful, they were captivated by their love for Christ. They were stirred and they were on fire inside. It was the presence of the Lord within them. In Philippians, the Bible says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Philippians 1:21. for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. We know this chapter after he had been put in the stocks overnight by Pasher the priest. Jeremiah was bemoaning his situation, but he said, But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. And Isaiah 62, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent and for Jerusalem's sake I will not keep silent until her righteousness goes forth like brightness. A compelling imperative. It is that fire that stirs in the bones and should of every Christian, that fire that keeps this word alive within the pulpits, within the congregations, within the cities, within the towns, they are aflame with it and you can't shut it off, and you can't stop it, and they face anything that comes their way because it's about Christ and Christ alone in his glory. The church in Germany forgot it. And the church in our nation is moving that direction. When a man can say the Bible got it wrong, when a man can stand in the largest Methodist church in the country and say you and I can pick out what is good and what is applicable and what is not, What do you think that the sinful man is going to pick out and take out? That's not God's word. That couldn't be God's word. That couldn't be applicable. It's going to be everything that helps the flesh do what the flesh wants to do. Compelling imperative. They were full. They said we must obey God. We we have no alternative. We can go no other direction. We can achieve nothing else. This is who we are. This is what we're going to do. And this is what we've got to be in our day and time. We see it in Acts 6 and 7 with Stephen. We see it in Fox's Book of Martyrs. All throughout history, we see these times when Christian, God's people stood. So there wasn't just an undeterred conviction, but there was an unflinching clarity with these men. Not only were they compelled, not only were they driven, not only was that imperative alive in them, but they were clearly seeing things now. We must obey God rather than men. The term rather than, it means to a greater degree, to much more than, far more, not only in scope, but in significance and objective. It wasn't just a mere transition. Well, I think we're gonna obey God instead of of y'all. No, this was something to them that was off the charts. We must obey God rather than you. In Luke 18, verse 39, there's a phrase here that kind of explains this even more. Those who led the way, this is speaking of Bartimaeus, We're sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying, all the more. Same meaning, same Greek word meaning. All the more, son of David, have mercy on me. It was all the more. In other words, we must obey God far more than we could ever consider obeying what you are telling us right now in this group. They had a clarity of priority. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, what does the scripture says? They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I like the way the King James put it. It says, they ceased not. They had just been beaten. No doubt some might have been bleeding, certainly were bruised, certainly were hurting. Let's go back and regroup. Let's go back. Do you think we really should be doing this? They went right back out. Went right back out, y'all. They didn't have a meeting. They didn't have a discussion. They didn't get together and say, can we figure out a better way to do this? They went right out because why? They were obeying God. They went right back out teaching. They had a clarity of purpose. In Acts 4.12 in Peter's message, He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. You know, the Bible is a very transformative book. When we read it, when we study it, when we pray over it, when you weep over it, when you you are rejoicing over it, it changes a man and it changes a woman. It transforms a church. The scales come off, you can see clearly Your faith, it becomes alive. Your hope and belief becomes real and tangible. You see the meat of who you are. You realize heaven is not just a theory or a thought, but it's reality. Christ is real. The Holy Spirit is real. It convicts you. It lifts you up and causes you to do things that most people will run and hide from because you're captivated by Christ. You're called by God Almighty. You want to live for him and count your life for him. And when the scales come off, you realize it's not just religion. It's not just a Sunday school class or a meal. It's him and him alone. And this is what happened to these men. This is how they could stand facing these kinds of people and do what they did. They were undeterred in their conviction. They were undeterred in their clarity. Man. Very quickly, because there's a couple of things I want to read so for you and I, just three things very fast. We must obey God with courageous, unshakable resolve, affirming the truth and the authority of the Bible. We must. We must. But Robert, what, if, what about things going on in our country? What if things get worse? What if things this? What if? What if? What if? Well, what if? This is what we're called to do. We have not faced things like other nations have faced. We have not dealt with the trouble that other Christians have faced in other countries. We have had a road relatively easy. But days could be coming and I believe are coming and you can look around and watch the news and you can see it coming where there is a greater bit of opposition to the church and a strong push to shut us up. What are we going to do? Believe you me, They will not be sufficed with us just keeping it in the walls. They want us to bow to the social ideologies and the paradigm shift that's happening in this country. It isn't going to be good enough for your preachers to stand on the stage and preach. Nope, you've got to bow. What are we going to do? How far are we going to step back or are we going to step forward? We must obey God. Secondly, with steadfast determination, defending the doctrines, the theologies, convictions of the Bible—the virgin birth, sin, grace, hell, the Trinity, deity of Christ—these are non-negotiable, absolutely non-negotiable. And the church within our denomination, other denominations, all of these things are starting to filter in: critical race theory, social justice reform, woke theology, intersectionality, postmodernism, social. Marxist ideologies, these are all creeping in because we are creating a void because we are listening to these other kinds of men. The Bible's wrong, so we'll bring in all of this Marxist teaching in the church, convolute the scriptures, and we've lost our message. And we are accountable for that. We have to defend the doctrines and stand firm. But what if they don't like me? Well, you heard... Landon preached a couple of Sundays back. Jesus said, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. They hated me. They will hate you. When we stand for the truth, they are not going to like us. But what do we do? What avenue do we have? Where do we go? We got to stand on this word like these men did. And then thirdly, we must obey God with unwavering confidence, proclaiming the entire counsel of the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. I hope you bear with me for just a moment. Landon, I hope it's okay. I just want to share a couple of things. Just a week and a half ago, Well, I read this article yesterday, but a week and a half ago, the Human Rights Campaign, the largest advocacy group and political lobby for the LGBT, uh, have made a statement. They're going to petition, if Joe Biden gets sworn in, they're going to petition his administration to immediately remove all accreditation from every Christian school in the entire country unless they do what? Provide policy that will prevent sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. Every single Christian school. And the article singled out Christian school. That's already on their agenda. First thing they're going to do, as soon as he's sworn in, that's the first thing they're going to do, to remove the accreditation from every Christian school. Let me read to you one other thing. This comes from Beatrice Alba. In March of 2019, this article in Guardian, she said, quote, If we reject gender discrimination in every other arena, why do we accept it in religion? Beatrice Alba, the author of the article, she chillingly argued that parents, regardless of their religious beliefs, do not, now listen to this, do not have the right to teach those beliefs to their children if those beliefs are hostile to the LGBTQ agenda. You don't have the right anymore. According to Alba, society has now progressed to the point where religious organizations, churches, individual Christians should no longer enjoy religious freedom. Either they must surrender to the moral secular revolution or they must go. Her article represents the full broadside of secularism against theism. A secular society will not tolerate any individual, institution, church, or denomination until it fully surrenders to a secular worldview. It is at our doorstep. You are not allowed as a parent, according to them, to teach your kids that if it flies in the face of this. If they're coming after the schools, they will come after the church. So the question for all of us is what are we going to do? One final thing and I'm finished. I read this out of, again, this is out of uh, Erwin Lutzer's book. And when I read this, it troubled me very much, bothered me for several days, still does. In fact, that night after I read this in this book, I, I had a hard time getting to sleep because it brought a lot of questions into my own mind. In, him, in his writing of this book, he assembled obviously a lot of literature, uh, a lot of history about writing, putting this book together. And there's one particular thing in here, this eyewitness account from a German Christian. Let me share this with you what this man said. He said, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it. I mean, because what what could we do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning, we could hear the whistle in the distance as we always heard it coming. The wheels coming over the tracks. We would become disturbed because we started to hear cries coming from the train as it passed by and weren't sure what it was. And then we started realizing that it was these trains that were carrying Jews like cattle in cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cry of the Jews en route to the death camps. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming and when we heard the whistle blow, we just began to sing our hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we would just get louder and louder so that we would not hear them anymore. Years have passed and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians and yet did nothing to intervene. Boy, that troubled me. This is where we find ourselves, beloved. We are in a time that we all need to get our stuff in order. Where do we stand? Where is our courage? Where is our conviction? Would you pray with me?